This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. President Donald Trump on Thursday in a speech in the Rose Garden said that he intended to pull the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord. What does it really mean for businesses? Welcome to Money Beat. Paul and Stephen here in the studio with Spencer Jacob of Heard on the Street, who uh, finds himself on Friday morning on page one. Spencer, how are you? I'm okay, Mr. Jacob. Mr. Jacob, yeah. Now oh, okay. that I'm on page I'm one, I thought we were I thought we were cool like that, but apparently we're we not. Were, we anymore. were cool like that. But, we used you know, to be. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, l- l- let's talk about this. There's a lot yeah. of th- th- there's a lot of talk about what you know, uh, how much this is real, how much this is politics. Yeah. What is this going to mean for businesses? Is, you know, there's a voluntary accord. There are no real penalties. You know, so can you kind of walk us through some of this? Well, yeah, it's. I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'll, I'll, I'll preface by saying I'm so surprised, especially, I guess, the TV punditry. Our, our paper's done a fantastic job and other major newspapers about how willing people are to, to talk about this without ha- having actually read what's required of us, which is very little. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't really tie our hands. Let me just just go through what, what the agreement sure. actually means. The Paris Agreement, the reason that I think that it was so successful uh, is because it doesn't require very much of you. It requires it has a global goal, which may or may not be met, of uh, you know of holding uh, temperature change to a certain level, um, and then countries go back and set their own goals. Now, the Obama administration, you know, signed the the agreement, went back, and then got to a specific target. But that target was a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions based on 2005 levels, and that is setting not an overly high bar. And the reason for that is that stuff started to happen after 2005, and especially after, shortly after he came into office, that uh, not owing to things that he did either, uh, that bent that curve. And one of those is that we had a big recession. Another is that driving habits began to change. And another is that the shale gas revolution happened. That's the biggest one. And all those things, uh, instead of that line going up and to the right in terms of greenhouse gas emissions from the U.S., it started to go down. And we're about two-thirds of the way there already hmm. in, in terms of what we pledge to do by 2025. There a, yeah, there was a year goal for it. I'm sorry, what was that? A yeah, it's, 2000, it's a 26 to 28% reduction from 2005 levels by 2025. Okay. Now, the, the latest projection is that by 2020, we'll be like 17% or so down. So, you know, it's it's not like we we haven't made progress and just it's because not, yeah. of those factors yeah. like yeah. nothing even sort of consciously trying to reduce right. it's just right well, these, yeah and yeah. and talk about the shale revolution and that impact on it and yeah. just go expand on that well okay that that is the biggest single factor um you know the basically uh in you go back to 2007 and the u.s was uh there were fears that we would uh have a shortage of natural gas. We have a huge domestic market, the biggest market in the world for natural gas, right? And uh, people were building import terminals uh, or planning import terminals up and down both coasts in order to import uh, gas, you know, know, that we, people thought we would need. Those are rusting hulks of metal or never got off the drawing board because what happened is that new technologies developed to cheaply extract more gas than we can use in decades uh, from shale. And all these oil plays, too, produce a lot of gas associated with them. 
So we have gas coming out the wazoo, and gas prices have collapsed. And that, uh, in addition to higher um, uh, compliance costs for coal plants, and some of that is Obama's doing, uh, made it kind of a no-brainer that if you had an old coal plant and you could build a new gas plant and get power from that, you shut down the old coal plant. You know, since um, in, in the last decade, about a third of our coal usage has dropped off. And gas usage uh, for electricity has grown by two thirds, so it's it's a huge change, and uh, it still is a you know it's still the hydrocarbon. It still does produce greenhouse gases, but for per unit of energy produced, gas is a lot less carbon intensive, and so that's a huge contributor. Another thing is we had the recession, and the economy is grow has grown a lot less slowly. I mean, when the year that Obama uh, you know was elected, two thousand and eight. The Department of Energy made a forecast of greenhouse gas emissions, and it was like up one percent a year. It's been like down, you know, two percent a year instead. So they were they were totally wrong. And so through really no kind of painful actions on our own, we've gotten most of the way there. Now Obama knew that, of course, when he made you know made the agreement. Right. You don't you know you kind of set the hurdle not too high for yourself. But then. Pulling out yesterday is is really just kind of like a, a middle finger to the rest of the world and kind of red meat to the the base for for Trump because the costs are actually not very high of getting pretty close to to the goal. Uh, so it, it's it's really all about appearances at this point. The costs are not very substantial. There there are a few specific things that he would like to change, and surprisingly, you know, they, when I wrote in my column. There are some big companies that kind of would have liked to, him to, to stick with the with the accords because it was really to their advantage. It's even like energy a lot companies. of them, actually. Yeah, a lot of companies say it. I mean, every every CEO wants to look green yeah. and progressive. Okay, let's not you know be they're not you know angels you know. But I mean, lots of companies. You know, GE came out. Right. Yeah, GE loves Jeff it. Jeff Immelt was out immediately. Of course, GE yeah. is is very sad about this. You know, right. because uh, if you you know make an a, power plant rules stricter that's great for them they're yeah. the biggest maker of turbines yeah. for gas powered plants i mean it's and they make you know stuff for green energy and all this stuff it's it's good it was good for them it was yeah. good for their bottom line not just good for their you know their souls right yeah. uh but then exxon mobil and conoco phillips same thing mm-hmm. and they weren't just paying lip service either it was good for them at the margin right and one way that it would be good for them First of all, Exxon has invested billions in alternative fuels, and if th- those work out, you know they have as good shot of anyone as getting a, a part of that market. But look at one of the provisions, one of the things that the EPA uh, initiative started under Obama that's probably going to be killed, which is capturing um, methane that that escapes from oil wells. Now, methane seeps out of every oil and, and gas well, but if you're in a big oil and gas producing area, methane, otherwise known as natural gas, it, you can take it, you can make natural gas out of it. You can get all kinds of valuable liquids out of it. You can make chemicals out of it. You, you, you're not going to waste that. It's not a waste product. But if you're out in Utah or Colorado, you're like a small, more marginal producer. You're farther away, not the kind of thing that Exxon Mobil or ConocoPhillips would be doing. Those guys, it, it's a big expense. And they say, oh, no, you're letting this methane escape. And methane is a more, much more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. And you need to capture it. You need to install all kinds of expensive equipment to capture it. That kind of means that those guys, it's going to be more expensive for those small fry to compete with with ExxonMobil's and mm. ConocoPhillips of the world. So that's that's actually good for them. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break. We have a message for you. We will come back on the other side more with Spencer Jacob, 
and Paris. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. Make sure to check out the Future of Everything podcast because the future is closer than you think. All new episodes each Friday in June. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat. We are speaking with Spencer Jacob, heard on the streets. Spencer Jacob, about uh, President Trump's decision to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord. And I, I thought it was interesting. You know, we're talking about CEOs who came out publicly against it. Uh, Lloyd Blankfein, mm-hmm. CEO of Goldman Sachs, got on Twitter mm-hmm. Had never, I guess he had an account, but he had never actually tweeted. His first, his first, his tweet. first and only, at this point, tweet was saying how disappointed he was that the president did this. You know, I mean, he could have done that in a lot of different ways. He mm-hmm. chose to go on Twitter to do it. I thought that was interesting. I think, I mean, I, I don't know what, um, I, before I was talking about companies that, that had something to gain yeah. from some of the rules being implemented that would have helped us get towards the goal. Um, Goldman Sachs, I have no idea what right. the kind of the plus or minus is for them. But that just tells you, I mean, this is a, you know, the head of a bank that's subject to lots of, of regulation uh, that you know, may have, have angered the president. And I think that Goldman Sachs, I mean, they, they, I'd put them in the camp of wanting to look progressive. And maybe yeah. he is genu- personally, genuinely yeah. upset about it. I don't want to you know, be completely cynical here. Um, but that just shows you which way the wind is blowing. I mean, the the bulk of the the commentary uh, today is negative. It's like, why why did we do this? This right. is this doesn't make the U.S. look good. You know, the the rest of the world is. On the other hand, the, what what people are saying, I think, misunderstand you know misunderstands the the impact of it. Like you know, you have these European leaders saying, well, the this train is not you know leaving the station and the U.S. can get on or be left behind. You know, not complying with these measures doesn't actually hurt the U.S. I mean, it's not like. This is like a some technological wave of the future, and we're we're staying in the previous century. It's just you know, I mean, we're free riders now on what the rest of the world is doing, basically, um, which is not our traditional role because we're the U.S. traditionally yeah. has a leadership role in these big initiatives. Well, I mean, and, and that's actually one of the things that Lloyd Blankfein pointed to yeah. was it wasn't just the environmental impact; it was the impact to the you know America's leadership in the world. Yeah, and you know, I, and that's what a lot of people. I think I've been talking about who who are the big I guess winners in this. I mean, what you have to look at you know, the the climate accord doesn't actually force the U.S. into any specific policy. So the U.S. then has a, a few policies that were intended to you know get us to that that goal. Um, one, I think, uh, one winner may be the auto industry, but I think it would have won anyway. Uh, I think it would have won under uh, President Hillary Clinton. Um, which are th- that's probably the the kind of the toughest pill to swallow is cafe standards, where under the Obama administration we were supposed to get to corporate average fuel efficiency of fifty four point five gallon miles per gallon by two thousand and twenty five. Right now, I think we're at twenty seven or twenty eight. So basically, the uh, average car produced by manufacturers selling to the U S. would have to be almost twice as efficient uh, as it is today in terms of MPG. But 
those, you know, we've heard that story before. We've had these goals have been set and broken and there are a million loopholes and, and it wasn't realistic for car companies to, to get to that goal. Of course, they could meet the goal, but the the cafes, the whole idea behind cafe is is a little bit silly because it says you have to, that has to be the average of the cars you sell. So you can sell a GMC Yukon that gets 17 miles per gallon, but then you have to sell, you know, a car that gets 80 miles per gallon to offset that. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, not the smartest kind of policy, and they weren't, but they weren't going to meet that anyway. But now probably they'll they'll make those standards more stringent. So that's, I think, a kind of um, definite win for them. For oil and gas, I don't know. I mean, um, it's it it's marginal, I think. And then for coal miners, I guess you know, the regulations we already knew that though were going to be a little lighter. And for coal burning utilities, the regulations will be a little bit lighter. That, I mean, but I mean, how much given your whole, you know, you talked about a great deal in the first segment about natural gas prices and yeah, where they yeah. are. And that's not going anywhere. Renewable energies, wind is, you know, is gra- grabbing a bigger share as well. Yeah. That doesn't seem to bode well for coal. I mean, no matter what the regulation uh, environment is. Well, renewable energy is a um, actually an area. I meant that's, the whole, well. Yeah, I also meant I mean, the whole I mean, if package. You, if you're a developer of a, like a solar farm or um, you know wind farm or you're doing rooftop solar, you are really dependent. Everybody talks about how much the, the costs have come down. You are totally dependent on government for right. um, for your business. And as things stand now, they're they're looking pretty good because the production tax credits, the kind of the federal tax credits for those types of energy, have been extended several years. So unless they Make they actually actively gut those those tax breaks. Those guys are doing okay uh, at the state level. That they've had some setbacks, you know, um, and that ha- doesn't have to do with people being you know anti Paris or whatever. It just has to do with it being too costly yeah. and utilities, you know, not wanting to to do it. And at, you know, perversely, a lot of these things that you know it's, you have an upper middle class person putting solar panels on their house. And then you have everyone else paying for it, including poor people who can't afford to have solar panels put on the the home that they or they or they rent a home. So it's you know the, some of the the kind of the green initiatives are not really you know as kind of warm and fuzzy as, as you think they are. And th- those guys m- might suffer, I guess, a little bit, but uh, but no, I haven't heard anything specific. Um, one of the questions I want you, you mentioned you know the states and states reg- regulation w- uh, with car companies. How much is that going to play a role? I mean, if states start deciding we're going to up the standards mm-hmm. for you to produce your car like California has for years. Right. And you also have other countries upping, you know, the sort of standard miles that you can get. Yeah. Um, does that, that does that crimp any, you know, benefit the car companies we get from, you know, us walking away from uh, the Paris Accord? Yeah. You know, if, if California is a big place, um, one out of every 10 cars sold is going to be sold in California. So if California – has uh, some rules for emissions and vehicles or whatever, that's kind of going to ripple through to the rest of the country. Any modifications to vehicles that they require are going to be, you know, they're not going to do it just for California. It's going to be a nationwide kind of thing. Um, in terms of the, the thing, what they can't do is the, a cafe standard type thing. I mean, they could say, yeah, the average car sold in California has to be whatever. Otherwise, the automakers pay a fine. And the car companies will be like, fine. Well, we, you know, then we'll we'll ration, you know, um, SUVs sold to California and sell them elsewhere. I mean, that's, I, I guess. But then, you know, there's no rule like that, and it wouldn't really wouldn't work. Yeah. And one state can't can't force that because then every other state would just sort of 
free ride on their backs, you know. You know but there are rules that they could do. And other countries have rules, too. And, yeah. so. and I think the sort of interesting thing, and, and we've been talking, kind of hitting on, hinting around this maybe, but it seems to me it's worth making the, the straight-up point is, so the president makes that speech in the Rose Garden yesterday, signals his intent. Uh, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the way the accord is written, he can't even get out of it for three years. Right. And... You know, as you were saying right at the top, I mean, there are so many market forces at play right here, uh, here right, right now. Uh, is anything did anything really change with that speech yesterday? No, nothing, nothing at all, except appearances. I mean, he, some people cheered, a lot of people booed. Yeah. Um, there's no policy change in the United States that's going to result from this that wouldn't have happened already. And guess what? It's possible that we'll even. It's, it's a long shot that we'll hit. The Obama goal. I mean, for example, all those projections of right because if we have another recession between now and then, and it's been a few years since we've had one, we could have, gosh, we could have two recessions between now and then, right? Or uh, or gas could take off, or some other thing could uh, could happen, or uh, driverless cars, or electric cars could get much much higher penetration. Any number of things uh, that are beyond the control of Washington could uh, could get us to. to the Obama goal, even without being in Paris. But, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it was was really all all for show uh, and is for some people to cheer and he he liked that and the people who didn't like approve of it don't approve of him anyway. And so it was, it's all political at the end of the day. And I mean, and and that gets to the point that you made earlier in, in in the podcast here was that this was, you know, really red meat for his base. Yeah. Um, how much, how much job creation? Because he made a big deal about, you know, this was killing jobs, hurting the economy. Is this is walking away from this going to, you know, generate jobs, especially in coal? No, it, it, there remarkably few people are employed mining coal or working in uh, coal plants. So if you look at, for example, if you uh, just replace a little bit of coal fire generate or generation with a much smaller amount of, let's say, of, you know, wind and solar, those happen to be a lot more labor intensive because of all the installation and stuff like that. So the number of people working and, you know, somehow attached to to green energy far outweighs the number of people digging coal out of the ground today. It just just is the fact. It's also the fact that coal is just, I mean, coal's not going to go away. Coal is always going to be there. And the U.S. has a lot of coal. Uh, the U.S. is, you know, they call it the Saudi Arabia of coal. In terms of, of BTUs in the ground, we've got a lot of coal. And it'll still be there if we don't dig it out today. But um, there's just not that many people who work in that business anymore. It used to be a big business, and it's it's much more capital intensive now. A lot of it's it's basically it's strip mining in the yeah. West. That's where you know where a lot of the coal is. It's not the um, you know the the shafts in um, in Virginia, Appalachia where yeah, Appalachia, it used to right, be. A lot of that's gone away because the those you know those mines are mined out already anyway. Yeah. All right, Spencer. Thanks for taking a little time. I know you know you got a lot to do now. You're a big page one writer. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. Important, but uh, we we appreciate your taking a little time to uh, help out our listeners. You're very welcome. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. We'll catch up with you soon. Make sure to check out the Future of Everything podcast because the future is closer than you think. All new episodes each Friday in June. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously.